Beautiful. Guys, I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me for our scripture reading, for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, and we're going to start with verse 37 and read to 49, and then we'll skip ahead to 53 and then read to 57. Genesis 41, starting in verse 37, I ask you to please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, His people. And the word of God says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Skipping down to verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we ask that you would indeed bless us as we 
as we open up your word today, that you would indeed bless the reading of this word and now especially the preaching of it. You be the one who speaks to us. May I fade away and may we hear from the living God today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you guys ever been reading the New Testament and you come across a passage where the writer quotes the Old Testament and does an interpretation and you think, oh, that's really interesting. Let me flip back to the Old Testament. You look at the footnote. Okay, this is all right. Let me go back to the Old Testament book and kind of read it in context and just see what's going on. Have you ever had this experience where you, you read it in the New Testament, you go to the Old Testament, and it's not worded the same way. And even if it is, you're like, how did he get that out of that? Am I the only, anybody know what I'm talking about? You're just like, I never would have come up with that interpretation of that verse ever. How did, what, how did he, how did he connect these dots? For, an, for example, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Jesus and the Holy Family, Joseph, Mary, they... Jesus is born, Herod wants to kill all the, all the baby boys in Bethlehem and Jerusalem and the surrounding areas that's two years old and under. And so they flee to Egypt, and then they come back from Egypt, and then Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the prophet spoke, out of Egypt I called my son. You think, wow, that is a really straightforward, obvious prophecy. Let me go back to Hosea and see it in context. And you're like, yeah, that's not about Jesus. Yeah, that's clearly not about Jesus. That's about Israel coming out of Egypt from the Exodus. So how did Matthew get from Egypt, from Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus, to Jesus leaving Egypt after he was born? How did Matthew get there? And this happens a lot. This happens a lot in the New Testament. Well, one of the most important things Jesus ever did was to teach his disciples how to interpret the Bible. Jesus imparted to his disciples the knowledge, skills, and insights they needed to unlock the riches of God's Word. Now, and the implication is, Jesus taught the apostles how to do it. We see the apostles doing it in the Bible. And our natural instinct is to say, there must be some fine print here at the bottom of the page that says, do not try this at home. But actually, we should be able to imitate how the New Testament reads the Old Testament. That's our guide. That tells us how to read the Old Testament. Jesus taught them how to do that. And, and we, we see glimpses of this in the New Testament. So this is in the very end of Luke's Gospel. In chapter 24, Jesus is walking with two people on the road to Emmaus, right? And they're distraught. They're distraught. They think, you know, they think, well, we thought Jesus was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the one we were praying for, but the Romans crucified him, so we know he couldn't have been. And it's been three days since the crucifixion, and we're leaving Jerusalem. We're heading back to Emmaus, and it was fun while it lasted, but I guess he wasn't who we thought he was. And 
course, the person that they're talking to is Jesus, but they don't recognize it's Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus, but they don't recognize him. So it's a weird story. Two of his disciples don't know who he is. And so here's what Jesus says to them, this, this mystery companion that's walking with them to Emmaus. He says in Luke 24, 25, Oh, foolish ones, stupid guys, in the non-flowery biblical way of saying it, dummies, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That got their attention. Jesus continues, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, him, that he should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them, his disciples, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this must have been an incredible, you know, eight-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus goes through from memory, which isn't hard for him. He kind of wrote it or, you know, inspired it. He's behind it. So Jesus, from memory, is just saying, well, you know, let's start with Genesis. All right, remember this story in Genesis, this story in Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. All right. This is about the Messiah, that's the Messiah, that's the Messiah. All right, next book, Exodus. And just as they're walking, he just starts rattling these things off. They must have been baffled. Well, by the end, they get to, the, they get to Emmaus, they get to their house, and Jesus is going to keep going. And they say, no, please, come in. Have dinner with us. And so he comes in, and then he breaks bread, and he blesses it, just like he did at the Last Supper. And all of a sudden, it says their eyes were opened, and they recognized who he was in the breaking of the bread. And then he vanishes from their sight. And obviously, they're freaked out. Okay? This, guy, this was Jesus the whole time. The whole eight mile, the whole time, it was him. And then he disappears. Come on. Well, here's what they say after this happens in verse 32. Luke 24, 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? Their hearts were burning within them as he explained Scripture to them and how it was about Jesus, how it was about himself as Messiah. And then we get to the end of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus appears again to all the disciples together, the very end, and he says, in, starting in verse 44, Jesus says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, catch this, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So earlier he opens the scriptures, and here at the end he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. So he's doing both things. He's opening up the Bible to them, going through the passages, and then he opens up their minds. He gives them the key to unlock how these things are about him. And no one could see this clearly. There were, some people could see bits and pieces, but no one could really get it until... Jesus had died and risen from the dead. In the light of the cross and the resurrection, 
what the Old Testament is about and what it says and what it means comes up in 3D in a way that you couldn't see it before. You've got to put on the 3D glasses of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the New Testament realities that he brought about. And now the Old Testament pops in a way you couldn't have imagined before. Stuff that was there the whole time suddenly emerges because now we have the appropriate lenses to see it. When you read the New Testament, Christian, and you see the authors interpreting Scripture, you are witnessing them do what Jesus taught them to do. The New Testament authors are able somehow, baffling to us, they're able to find Jesus on nearly every page of the Old Testament. How? Why? It's because Jesus said, Luke 24, 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there's stuff about Jesus in all that. In the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, in the prophets, and of course, for the Jewish mind, the prophets included not just Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the 12 minor prophets. That included all the historical books too because they believed they were written by prophets. So when he says prophets, he means from judges all the way to the end of the prophets, and then he throws in the Psalms. All this, he says, talks about me, and I fulfill these things. Or, as he says over in John chapter 5, verse 46, he's talking to his enemies, the Jewish leaders in this particular passage. John 5, 46, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So Moses is writing about Jesus, he says. So there really is stuff in there about Jesus. It's not just like an on-the-nose prophecy, like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, or Psalm 20, 22, about they pierced my hands and my feet. That one's kind of on the nose. We, we got that one. Piercing your hands and your feet sounds like the cross. We got it. We're not that, we're not that sharp, but we got that one. There's a lot more in there. And Jesus gives us the clue about how to read it. So, what, so what, what is this key? What is this? It's an interpretive method that he taught his apostles, and it's called, today we call it, typology. Typology. Typology is the method of detecting parallels between Old Testament realities and New Testament realities. And then utilizing the details of the Old Testament side of the parallel to illustrate and deepen our understanding of the New Testament side of the parallel. We call the Old Testament side of the parallel a type. Typology comes from this idea. A type. And the New Testament side of the parallel is called the fulfillment. Or sometimes it's called the anti-type. And here, anti just means in place of. So the types in the Old Testament and the New Testament has the anti-type or the thing that replaces the type. The fulfillment of the type. So the Old Testament type prefigures or points to or foreshadows or has a similar shape or structure or pattern to what we find in the New Testament. And the anti-type or the fulfillment always surpasses the Old Testament type. It's always greater the fulfillment's always greater, and it completes or fulfills the reality that the Old Testament type is pointing to or aiming at. So, 
one way to think of it is the type, the relationship between the type and the anti-type is the relationship between a shadow and the person who casts the shadow. In fact, that's exactly how Paul describes it. Paul, who was one of these who was taught how to do this, uh, in, in the letter to the Colossians, uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, Therefore, and let no one pass judgment on you in questions about, and then he names some Old Testament stuff. Let no one pass judgment on you, Christians, on questions of food and drink, so kosher laws, dietary laws, kashrut, or with regard to a festival, right, the big Jewish holy festivals, or a new moon, so the Jewish calendar, which was based on the cycles of the moon, or a Sabbath, so the Jewish holy day, each week of the Sabbath. Christian, don't let anybody cast judgment on you in disputes and questions about any of these particularly Jewish things, about how Jews practice their religion. Verse 17, Colossians 2, these things he just listed, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the new moon, the calendars, the Sabbath laws, the, the, the dietary laws, the festivals and feasts of Israel, all this stuff, Paul says, he doesn't say they're not real or they're useless. He says they're shadows cast by a person named Jesus. They're the shadow of Jesus. So we should be able to see Jesus in them. They're all pointing at him. And now that the substance, the person is here, we don't worry about the shadow anymore. So don't let people judge you about shadows. Because the shadow has passed away and the person has finally come. The person of Christ. One more verse where this is mentioned. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. The shadow, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So when the writer to the Hebrews looks at the Old Testament, he looks at the law of Moses, he sees shadows that are fulfilled by New Testament realities in the person and work of Christ. So here's two places in the New Testament where the apostles or the companions of the apostles tell us a little clue about how Jesus taught them to read the Bible. We start with the New Testament realities of Christ, His church, His saving benefits, and, his, and the future hope He promises. And then we search the Old Testament for people, places, things, and events that parallel in some way these New Testament realities, that have a similar shape or figure to these New Testament realities. We look for things that are the same type of thing. When we do typology, we are tracing the shadows that Jesus casts from the New Testament back across the Old Testament. In the light of the cross and the resurrection, the Old Testament shadows show themselves and give deeper spiritual insight into Jesus and the New Testament. In the church calendar, today is when we celebrate the ascension of Christ, the ascension of the Lord. 
40 days after Easter, Christ ascends. 10 days after that, Pentecost, 50 days total after Easter, the giving of the Holy Spirit. So I think this past Thursday was Ascension Day, officially 40 days after Easter. And this is the nearest Sunday to that. So today we celebrate the ascension of Christ, the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And in our passage this morning, I want us to engage in a little bit of typological reading. Just I explained it, but let's just see it, how it works in action. I want to engage in some typological reading of the promotion of Joseph in Genesis 41 as a shadow of the New Testament reality of the ascension of Jesus. Joseph was raised from a pit and seated in a palace at Pharaoh's right hand. And Jesus was raised from the pit of death, from the grave, and seated in heaven at God's right hand. Joseph was the exalted ruler of Egypt, and Jesus is the exalted Lord of all. Now just right there, these are striking parallels. And so what you do is you start with the New Testament, and then you, you're reading the Old Testament, and you see a parallel, you should pause and think, let me look a little deeper into this and see just how many parallels there are and how deep this goes. But you have to start with the New Testament. You can't just, oh, I'm going to make this up. Goliath is a big man, and Jesus is the big man, so here's a, no. No, 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 no. Like, that's weird, and, and in church history... This typology got way out of control and turned into just pure allegory. The Old Testament stories are nothing but allegories of, of weird, mysterious things that you, only, that you have to be as spiritual as I am to see. This happened in the early church all over the place. Not everywhere, but it happened a lot. This complete allegorizing of the Old Testament, which just denies its historicity or downplays its historicity and undermines the literal teaching of the Old Testament and just makes it this big code book where you have to like figure out the code to unlock the mystery about Jesus. And that's not what it is. You start with the New Testament, what the New Testament literally teaches, and then you move to the Old Testament and look for parallels. And if you find a parallel, you think, okay, let's look into this and see how deep the parallel goes. And as we keep finding parallels and connections, the Old Testament shadow will fill in some more detail and deepen our understanding of the New Testament. Just as our understanding of the New Testament fills in and deepens our understanding of the Old Testament. It works together. It all works together. So we have this initial parallel between Joseph and Jesus. Let's see how deep it goes. These are striking parallels, and so we are encouraged... By our rules of typology, we're encouraged by the teaching of Jesus and the example of the apostles that we just looked at to study this event in the life of Joseph as a type of the exalted Lord and see what deeper spiritual insights it might have for us. So that's a long introduction. And we don't have time to go into all of the details, but I just want to survey some of them for you to see how this works. And my ultimate hope is you'll be encouraged to go to your Bibles with some renewed excitement and some enthusiasm to say, there might be dimensions to this familiar old book that I never dreamed of. 
Let me see how the New Testament deals with the Old Testament. And then let me go to the Old Testament and be careful and do some trial and error. But let me read it and see if I can know more about my Savior. Because the Old Testament is his book too. And Jesus already said it's all about him. So let's, let's look into the story of Joseph, this episode in Joseph's life, and let's just survey some parallels, see what God has for us. First, verses 37 to 41, the beginning of the section that I read. What's going on? The backstory is Pharaoh has had two very disturbing dreams. He has a dream where there are these seven beautiful cows... And then there's these seven horrible, thin, ugly cows. And the ugly cows eat the healthy cows. And Pharaoh's like, what is this? Now in the ancient world, dreams were very mysterious to the ancient people. To, to most ancient people. And they truly believe God communicates special messages from the divine realm or the gods or spirits of any kind communicate to us super spiritual insights, especially about the future through dreams. God talks through dreams. And Pharaoh wants to know what does this dream, what is, you know, and Egypt had lots of gods, what, what, are the, what, is the God, what are the gods trying to tell me here? And so he calls in all of his servants. Nobody can interpret the dream. And now, if Pharaoh doesn't know what it means, I don't know how he could tell that nobody could interpret it. It must have been like, that doesn't sound right. Nah, that can't be what it means. So he, anyways, it's confusing it's per, and they're all perplexed. And then somebody says, hey, when I was in prison years and years ago, there was a Hebrew guy there named Joseph and he interpreted a dream and it came true. That's why I'm alive today. And Pharaoh said, okay, get him out of that hole and bring him in here now. I need to hear from this man. And so Joseph comes in. Pharaoh says, I need an answer. And Joseph says in verse 16, it is not in me to give you the answer. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then he goes through and he makes this interpretation. Well, there's going to be seven years of unprecedented prosperity where the grain is going to be so abundant you won't be able to count it. And then that's going to happen for seven years. Then the next seven years, the seven ugly cows, are going to devour all that grain. Seven years of severe, horrific famine are coming after that that will just wipe out all that prosperity. And then Joseph says, so here's what you do. Pharaoh didn't ask for this, but just, no one asked. But Joseph said, and now here's my suggestion. Save some of that grain... Store it up. Don't just eat it all. Store it up. And then when the seven years of famine come, we can dispense it out a little bit at a time and just enough to get us through the seven years of famine and then we're golden. Pharaoh, in verse 37, it says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? No one had the spirit like Joseph. He was wiser than all of Pharaoh's servants. It says, since God has shown you all this, verse 39, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. The New Testament tells us, especially Paul in Colossians says, that in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. Just as Joseph was the wisest man anybody could find in Egypt, just as Joseph had the Holy Spirit in a unique way that no one else had and no one else could explain, he was able to have insights, he was able to interpret dreams, he had such wisdom, it baffled all those around him. So it was in Jesus' time, he had the Spirit, we're told, without measure. There was no limit to his ability to walk in the Spirit, to use the Spirit, to act and move in the Holy Spirit. And there was none who could withstand his wisdom. Even at age 12, the Gospel of Luke says, he baffled all the rabbis sitting in the temple having their discussions. His wisdom was unprecedented. Joseph was the one who had the Spirit and wisdom. Christ is the one who has the Spirit without measure and all the treasures of wisdom belong to him. Another parallel here. Pharaoh was pleased with Joseph and rewarded him with rulership over all the land of Egypt. You see that here in verse... Here, starting in verse 40. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Pharaoh was pleased with Joseph and made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. God was pleased with Christ, Philippians 2, and exalted him not just to Lord of Egypt, not just king in Jerusalem, not just king of the Jews. He's exalted as Lord over all things. Joseph was given this supreme rulership over Egypt And in the same way, because Christ perfectly pleased his Father, he has been lifted higher than any other throne, to the highest throne imaginable. He has been lifted up and exalted to God's right hand. He was obedient to the point of death, and therefore God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2, and given him a name above every name. In verse 40, Joseph ascended to Pharaoh's right hand. You see that? He says, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Only as regards this throne. Joseph had full supremacy over all of Egypt. The only thing he didn't have was Pharaoh's crown and Pharaoh's chair. That everything else he had. All the dominion Pharaoh had. When Joseph looked at Pharaoh, he bowed the knee. But when Joseph turned around and faced Egypt, they bowed the knee. The only one Joseph bowed to was Pharaoh. And this makes sense of things that Jesus says in the Gospel of John, like in John 14, 28, when he says, The Father is greater than I am. It's the same thing here. How is the Father greater than Jesus? Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Jesus sits at God's right hand. When Jesus looks at his Father... He calls him, my God. At the end of John, when he's risen from the dead, he tells his disciples, I am ascending to your God and my God, your Father and my Father. Jesus has a God. Jesus has a Father. Jesus has a Lord. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When Jesus looks at his Father, he acknowledges his Father is... God. But when he turns around and looks at us, we all call him God. (laughs) The only thing that distinguishes the risen, exalted Messiah is that he sits at God's right hand. Other than that, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him.
That's how the Father is greater. Jesus ascended to God's right hand. So that's the parallels to begin with there in verses 37 to 41. Let's move to the second one. In verse 42, we're told this, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Very interesting, these three descriptions that Pharaoh does for Joseph. The signet ring. Pharaoh takes the ring off of his hand, puts it on Joseph's hand. This is Pharaoh's signet ring. This has his seal on it. So whenever Pharaoh makes a decree, he can stamp his seal on that decree. And that is the law. That is the word of the God King Pharaoh, who was believed to be a god on earth by his Egyptian subjects. He took his authority off his hand and he put it on the hand of Joseph. And that means... Joseph gets to speak in Pharaoh's name. Joseph gets to speak as Pharaoh. When Joseph speaks, Pharaoh has spoken. And likewise, we see Jesus in the Gospels who says, The one who rejects me does not reject me, but the one who sent me. I do not speak of my own authority. I do not speak my own words. I speak as the Father has told me to speak. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus opens his mouth, we're hearing God's words, not just the words of a really, really powerful, mere human being. We're hearing the Father in him speak through him. So Joseph is like Pharaoh's prophet. He can say, thus says Pharaoh, and it's law. Jesus can come as the great prophet and speak in the name of the Lord. Second, Joseph is given... It says, Joseph was given garments of fine linen. Now, in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, fine linen is always associated with the priests. Aaron and his sons and the Levites, they wear garments of fine linen. This is a connection that people make between uh, regarding the priesthood. They're the ones who are, throughout the Pentateuch, clothed in fine linen. Later on in the Bible, you'll see... Kings, like David, clothed in fine linen. But it's interesting, David as king is, is clothed in fine linen so that he can do something in the temple in a priestly role. Fine linen is always associated here, or almost always associated, with priesthood. When Joseph is clothed in garments of fine linen, it is a way of putting him over Pharaoh's priests. And you see this because whenever Joseph's given a wife, it's the daughter of a priest. Joseph is initiated as head over Pharaoh's religion, head over Pharaoh's priesthood. And in the same way, Jesus isn't just our prophet, but he's also our priest. But not a priest in the Egyptian sense, he's a priest in the Jewish sense, where he comes and he offers the supreme sacrifice for our sins, the sacrifice of himself. And he passes not into some holy of holies on earth, the holiest place in a tabernacle or temple, but he carries that shed blood and that perfect sacrifice into the inner sanctum of heaven itself and lays it at the feet of the Father in person when he's exalted. And now he is our mediator. He intercedes for us. He is our priest who, he doesn't have to leave the holy of holies. He sits there 
in the presence of His Father. And when we sin and when we cry out for forgiveness, He shows the Father His wounds. And He says, They cannot be condemned, Father, for my sacrifice has been received. And He pleads His own blood in our behalf. He is our priest. Joseph finally here is told, not just that he gets the signet ring, not just that he gets the fine linen, but it says he put a gold chain around his neck. Of course, he can't put the crown on Joseph's head because Pharaoh is still Pharaoh. He doesn't give him the crown, but he takes the gold chain and puts it on. It's the closest thing to the head you could get, right? You can't get the crown on the head, you got the chain around the neck. He gives him the gold chain. Joseph is prophet, he is priest, and he is under Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Prince of Egypt, right? It's a good movie. Prince of Egypt. Ruler under Pharaoh of everything, the whole land. Jesus is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. Jesus is our king, he is our Lord. He rules and reigns over all. He said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven on earth and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The next thing here is verse, in verse uh, 43 is, He made Joseph ride in his second chariot. Think right hand of God. He rides in the second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Bow the knee. Have you ever asked yourself a question? Have you ever wondered, Why is it okay for us to worship a human Jesus? Why is it okay for us to worship Jesus? If Jesus was a, a man, and he wasn't just a man, okay, fair enough. But still, when we worship Jesus, are we just worshiping the divine side? And we're leaving the human side by itself? Are we ignoring that? Is he still human? Does he still have a body? What's going on? Where is it? <laughs> Interesting questions. Why is it okay for us to worship a created being? The humanity of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He always existed, but He was incarnate. Is it okay for us to worship that incarnate part? And the answer is yes, because God says to. <laughs> because God says to. He puts, Pharaoh puts Joseph in the second chariot, and he says, you don't just bow the knee to me. Now, the day before, that's all, the, that's all you could do. The day before this happens, if you bow the knee to anybody but Pharaoh, you're done. But when Pharaoh says, he's in my second chariot, you're going to bow the knee to him, then you have to do that, or you're done. God exalted Jesus to his right hand, and he says, I'm giving him the name that's above every name, and every knee must bow to him, and every tongue must confess to him, to the glory of me, the Father. And in John, we're told, God wants us to honor His Son just as we honor Him. This is what God wills for us. And in fact, when you get to the book of Revelation in chapter 4, God is seated upon the throne and the, and the angels and all the creatures of heaven worship Him. And then in chapter 5, a lamb shows up. The Lamb of God, and it looks like he's been slain, the author says. Slain, but somehow risen. And he stands in the midst of the throne, right there next to the Father. And all the hosts of heaven bow, and they worship the Father and the Lamb. They worship them both. They worship a crucified and risen man, Jesus. God gets to tell us who to worship. And God includes his incarnate Son... 
Not just his divine son, bracket off his humanity. But even in his humanity, we worship Jesus as both God and man. We worship him as one Christ. Just as we see Joseph being honored alongside Pharaoh. It's not idolatry to worship the incarnate Jesus. It is, in fact, commanded. And then we're told, after he said to bow the knee, we're told he set him over all the land of Egypt. And then in verse 44, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. How sovereign is your Jesus? How in control is your Jesus? How much authority does he have? Now here we're told in this sort of hyperbolic statement about Joseph, no one in Egypt can do this without your consent. All he did was, all he did was move a hand. No one in Egypt can move a hand without your say-so. No one in Egypt can pick up a foot and take a step. I mean, the two most basic things that happen 10 trillion times a day in Egypt. Nobody's hands can move and nobody's feet can move, Joseph, without your say-so, without your consent. Now, Joseph has no control over that, literally. But again, the antitype, the fulfillment, is always greater than the type. It surpasses the type. How much authority does Jesus have? He's got it all. No one on this earth can lift hand or foot without his literal say-so. None of us can take a step or move a muscle. Not one molecule can shift. Not one electron can make a spin without the say-so of the Son of God. He is all-sovereign. He is exalted and risen. And he's not just somehow nebulously in charge, he's also fully in control of his universe. He looks upon every square inch of this globe and he says, that's mine. That's mine. That belongs to me. And what happens there is up to me. Jesus is Lord. Hastening on, he's given a new name and he's given a bride just as Christ has given the name above every name, and he's given the church to be his bride. The church, wedded to her Lord, Jesus. Let's move on. Last point. Last point in verses 46 to 49 and 53 to 57. Joseph and Jesus were told... Here's one where it's like, okay, if we didn't get it before, we got it now. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old. When he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. How old was Jesus when he started his ministry? Right? Luke tells us he's 30. Hey, we know that one. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> but see, now they start piling up. They start actually all popping out a little bit more clearly. Once you just start down the trail. You start with these, this list of New Testament stuff. And you just say, wow, that detail kind of connects. And that kind of looks like it fits. And that fits. And then he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. Just as Jesus was 30 years old when he entered into his earthly ministry officially. In verses 47 through 49, we see Joseph storing up all this grain, storing up the prosperous yield of grain that Egypt was given in the seven years of prosperity. Jesus, 
likewise is the source of our prosperity. And then in verse 55 and following, when the, when the famine becomes severe, what, does, what happens in verse 55? When all the land of Egypt was famished and people cried to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said to all Egypt, go to Joseph and what he says you do. When we cry out to God in the midst of our severe calamity, when we are in the midst of a famine, spiritually, in our relationships, you name it, when we're in the midst of a dry season in life, when we cry out to God, where does God send us? Go to my son. And whatever he says, that's what you do. Go to Jesus. We go to Jesus for our prosperity, for our provision. When we're in the midst of seven of the seven best years of life, the, the sun is shining every day. It's perfect. Life is good, easy. You know, back, back home we'd say when you're up on the mountain, when you're on the mountaintop and you're experiencing the joy of the Lord and the favor of God, and life's just perfect, who's given you that? Who's given you that prosperity? It's Jesus. But then, when you're down in the valley, right? When you go down the mountain and it's the valley of the shadow of death and, and it's severe and there's famine and there's evil and there's danger, where do you turn? You cry out to God and where does He tell you to go? Look to the one I gave you to be your Savior. Go to Jesus. Go to my Son and do whatever He says. Depend upon Him. Lean upon Him as your source and your Savior. And finally, verse 57, the end of the chapter, it says, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The curse of sin covers all the earth. But the Savior of the earth has been sent. The Savior of the world has come. And now all the nations must go to Him. And not only must go to Him, but are coming to Him. That's the only reason you're in this room this morning. Is because Jesus is Lord of all. And He sent His apostles and He sent His prophets. He sent His servants who preached the gospel. And one person got saved and another person got saved. And one church got planted another church got planted. And then they had people that went out and preached. And then this person got saved and that person got saved. And then people crossed an ocean and planted a church here. And then that person got saved and that person witnessed on down to you. You are in a, you are in a line of testimony and witness stretching back to Jesus and his apostles. We are successors of all the Christians that have come before us. All the nations had to go to Joseph to be saved from the famine. And now all nations must come to Jesus to be saved from their sins. And one day, all the nations will fully come in. And all will bow the knee. And Christ will be all in all. So this is just a survey this morning. Of some ways you can dig into your Old Testament and make connections to Jesus that Jesus said are there. And it will make your Bible reading come alive in fresh, new, and exciting ways. You won't be able to wait until you get to open up the Old Testament again. The Old Testament's a opaque, difficult book for most of us. But if we know what to look for, it can become a thrilling 
word from God directly to us. So Christian, look, when you go to your Old Testament, look for those types of Christ. Know your New Testament really well so you know what you're looking for. That way you don't make stuff up, which is always a danger. Know your, old, know your New Testament really well and dig into your Old Testament, which is just as much the Word of God as the New, and look for your Jesus on every page. Jesus is our Messiah. He is our Lord and Savior. And he said that the whole Bible is all about him. But when you go to your Bible, don't just look. Don't just look for Jesus. Love the Jesus you find when you get there. Love this Jesus. Worship this Jesus. Grow in your faith in the Jesus who fulfills all the scriptures in his perfect person and his finished work. And see the joy that God can bring to your heart and the renewed walk with him you will find. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a word that is not just one layer deep, but has depths that we cannot all fathom, even in one lifetime. Thank you that you've given us a word that in its essentials is so clear that even a child can open it up and find the clearest statements about what it means to know you as God, what it means to be saved from sin, what it means to trust Jesus and believe the gospel, and what it means to live a life that's pleasing and glorifying to you. We thank you that, it's, that you've put those essentials on the bottom shelf where people like us, O oh foolish ones and slow of heart, can, can receive and understand and believe. But we also thank you that once we've gotten the grasp of those first steps in our faith, that there is depths and dimensions and vistas of wonder and glory that we couldn't have fathomed. And I pray that you would turn our hearts back to your word. Give us excitement to go into your word, to know Jesus and his perfect person and finished work so well that when we get to our Old Testament, we're able to make these connections and see the types and shadows of Christ because we know that they're there because you've told us that they're there. So give us some enthusiasm and some excitement about our scriptures. Help us to dig in in fresh and new and exciting ways and let your word, we pray, by the power of the Spirit, have its life-changing effect to open our eyes, open our ears, change our minds, change our hearts, change our direction of life, renew our wills. Help us to be humble, holy servants of Christ, eager to know him more, both in the New Testament and in the Old. And we'll give you the praise as you do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.